0: Instead of the more usual kind of Dharma talk this evening, I thought I'd share with you some of the ups and downs of my own Dharma journey, Joseph's Dharma life story. And (coughs) hopefully it'll be of some interest (laughs) and uh, perhaps of some value uh, just as you relate to your own unfolding journey. In many spiritual traditions, it's the awareness of suffering, either our own or someone else's, that provokes a deeper kind of questioning. For me, this started with my birth. (laughs) my mother was actually very sick while she was pregnant with me she lost 30 pounds and they had to uh, induce my birth a month early because she was so sick so I think even in the womb I really didn't want to be there (laughs) when I was letting her know I didn't speak until I was three. And for most of that time, I screamed. And <laughs> I think it was the great uh, patience test <laughs> for my parents. And then growing up, even after I started talking and stopped screaming continually, I had. For many years these uncontrollable uh, temper tantrums you know I just for some reason had this hypersensitivity and if somebody did something that was just a little too abrasive in my mind mostly family related I would just have this uncontrollable temper outburst I was really making myself and everyone around me quite miserable but then, around 11 or 12, after one of these outbursts, I had my first deep insight into the nature of mind. And it was really provoked by this very, very unpleasant experience. Just after one of these big ta- temper tantrums, feeling miserable, you know, I realized that I had a choice. That between the impulse to vent and the actual outburst, there was a moment. And if I could catch that moment, there was actually a possibility of choosing otherwise. And so that was, that was really a great revelation. I remember it was, it was like my first meditation. I remember at that time, about, about 11, saying to myself, you know, just in catching that moment, count to ten. Just count to ten. You know, wait. Don't act on it. And it was amazing. That was kind of the first inkling that you know, I and we can actually control our minds. That was a that was a big insight. And soon after that had a lot of experience of death over the next few years in my family. Uh, my father died when I was 12. His grandfather died with I you know, was quite close to a few years later. A young cousin, just a couple of years older than myself, was killed in an automobile accident. And all of these coming together in those you know, really rather formative years, uh, it made me very, very conscious of the fact of death and even though it took many years to emotionally process all that you know for quite a while on the emotional level i really suppressed it but there was some very startling and stark recognition of the fact of death you know that somebody is there and then often quite suddenly they're not there and just what is that you know and at age 12, and especially in such a close relationship, uh, it's a very powerful experience of absence. Uh, so that was, that was, I think, um, another kind of opening uh, to really what we would now call the heavenly messengers, the realization that this can happen at any time. Know, because in, in some of those situations, it was, it was really quite unexpected. Then later in high school and in my first year of college, my mind became somewhat obsessed with the question of God you know, and, and the question of whether God exists. And I felt as if my whole life, the course of my life, the direction of my life, depended upon my answering this question. Does God exist? And I remember as a freshman in college, I was at Columbia, New York. Uh, I was just going around campus. It was like this koan that I had in my mind and I couldn't spit it out and I couldn't swallow it and it was obsessing me. And finally, I gave myself a week to decide because I was driving myself crazy. And I said, okay, you have one week. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't remember what I decided. <laughs> so I lost the, <laughs> the fruit of that. Anyway, I was studying philosophy you know, in my, in my later years of college. It wasn't very satisfying. No, I think I, I think I studied philosophy because I was really looking, for, looking for, for wisdom, for how to understand things. Wanted really to find something to live by rather than something simply to study. But most of the professors, at least then there, were not particularly interested you know, in the study of philosophy in that way. So there was some, there was some searching and non-fulfillment you know, in, in the college years in that sense. But one thing happened in college, which was uh, the seed of a lot that followed. Uh, I was taking one course in Eastern religion, and we were reading the Bhagavad Gita. And there's one theme in the Bhagavad Gita that just jumped out at me, even though at that time I really didn't understand it and didn't have any context for it. But the theme that, that really spoke to me was the phrase, act without attachment to the fruit of your action. Act without attachment to the fruit of your action. So this idea of non-attachment, even though I really didn't understand it, somehow it was resonating on some very deep level. I knew that it was important. Years later, um, this is much more recently, at a conference with the Dalai Lama, uh, he expressed this same teaching, you know, from a slightly more Buddhist perspective, uh, and. Filled out when I heard him say this, it kind of filled out the meaning of what went back to me, for me, you know, to that, those early years. He said that the real measure of our action is the purity of our motivation in doing it, and not in its success or failure. And somehow that puts everything into a very empowering context. Because as we all know, there are many things as our lives unfold that are really not completely or at all in our control. There are so many forces at work. And yet so often we're measuring ourselves, assessing ourselves and judging ourselves on the success or failure of of our actions, and we're missing the point. Because the real measure is in the quality of our motivation, and that's something we can work with. Now this was expressed so clearly and succinctly uh, in a Tibetan teaching where it says, everything rests on the tip of motivation. That's such a key point to look at, and as you have been looking at for the last six weeks or three months. In my junior year, I happened to be on the subway in New York, and I was sitting in a subway car along with one of the first groups of Peace Corps volunteers. If you remember, the Peace Corps was started, I think, in '63, you know, under Kennedy. This was one of the first groups they were training at uh, Barnard, the Women's College of Columbia, at that time. I started talking with them, and I got completely inspired, you know, by the thought of of joining the Peace Corps. I was really tired of school. I wanted to get out of the academic setting, and it just, you know, this just seemed to fulfill all of those romantic notions of exploration and discovery and travel and so I applied, I applied to the Peace Corps and I applied to go to East Africa because I just had this notion, very romantic notion of you know, Mount Kilimanjaro and climbing it and this and that. Well, in its infinite wisdom, the Peace Corps sent me to Thailand <laughs> instead, for which I am now very grateful. Of course, in Thailand, that was the first introduction uh, to Buddhism. And I think many of you have heard me uh, tell the story of my first my going to these discussion groups with Westerners who were Buddhist monks, and I was so full of kind of my philosophical studies. The first time I went, I went with a copy of Spinoza in my hand. Spinoza was my main man, you know. And I was kind of okay. I'll I'll show these monks. <laughs> <laughs> And I just was so relentless in my questioning in these groups. You know, people stopped coming because I was going. (laughs) Uh, And I'm sure you've all been in groups where there's one obnoxious person who just doesn't shut up. Oh, that was me. And finally, you know, I think out of some desperation, one of the monks said, Joseph, I think you should try meditating. (laughs) I think it was just an effort to Get me to be quiet. Well, it was very exotic. This was in 1965, 66. You know, I didn't know anybody who was meditating there. I was quite young. I was you know twenty, twenty years old, twenty-one years old, uh, in Bangkok meditating. Mm. Okay, so I get all my paraphernalia together, you know, and sit in cushions and this and that, and then I set my alarm clock for five minutes. And so, it's not to sit too long. <laughs> but it was a powerful five minutes. <laughs> it was probably the best five minutes of my meditative career. <laughs> and what I saw was, even in those first few minutes, and this is so remarkable, and this is something you all know very well now, it was just remarkable to me that there was a way to turn inward to look into the mind as well as looking out through it. You know, in all the years of study and relationships and this and that, nobody had ever mentioned the possibility we could actually look into our minds in some systematic way. So that was tremendously exciting. I just I was so excited I kept inviting my friends over to watch me meditate. (laughs) And I still am, (laughs) you know. (laughs) So, thank you for coming. (laughs) During the second year of my Peace Corps, my time in Bangkok, I was teaching English in Bangkok. Um, I think I I might have mentioned this earlier on. I undertook the project of reading Krust's great masterpiece. You know, A Remembrance of Things Past. Uh, that's the English translation. You know, and it's this huge 2,000-page volume, so about a year, you know, to do it. And it's an amazing book, as if one can get through it. And the last, like, 50... It's all about, you know, as as I'm sure you know, the. it's about somebody... Uh smelling something. Uh, it's the smell of a like a little French pastry, Madeleine. And it reminded him. It brought the smell brought back the memory you know, of some of his past life. And the whole book is about the elaboration of that. And then in the last 50 or so pages, Proust really talks about the nature of time. So there I was in the Peace Corps. I was coming to the end of the stay. I had begun, you know, this little bit of meditation, very interested, you know, just understanding my mind. And then I'm reading this, and basically his insight, and his very great insight, is that the past is in the present, which we've talked about a lot. That the way we experience the past is as a thought in the present moment, a thought, a memory, a feeling. But it's something that's happening now. That's how we experience the past. So then my mind made the leap, which not not in the book particularly, but I just made the extrapolation. Well, if that's true of the past, it's also true of the future. that the way we experience the future is as a thought or feeling or you no know, idea in the present. This was... It felt like a little mini-satori. I mean, it was a powerful uh, understanding of how we experience time. Because I, like I think most people, have created this huge burden of past and future as concepts that we carry around and we're weighed down in our lives. I mean, how much of the time that you've spent here has been in the present moment. <laughs> How much of the time has been lost in the past, lost in the future, forgetting that it's just a thought in the moment? You know, so it's tremendously liberating when we can see that clearly, and it doesn't really take a lot except just paying attention to it. And it's particularly uh, valuable now, toward you know, as we're approaching the end of the retreat, as I'm sure your mind having many thoughts of planning a future. It's a wonderful opportunity to have a very penetrating insight into this very liberating understanding of how we get caught in these mind bubbles, in you know, huge mind worlds of past and future, and really they're just a thought in the moment. They're very light. This was a big... This was a big opening for me, and then right toward the end of my peace corps stay, this was after the, you know two years of being there, after this kind of opening to the nature of time, I was sitting in a friend's garden. Um, one of one of my fellow teachers, and he was reading a text. It was a Tibetan text, which in that translation, this was an early translation of it, it was called the Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation. And it really, it was from that text that we developed that big mind meditation that we did earlier. You know, and the message of the text, over and over again, is look within at your own mind. look within at your own mind, and then it, it You know, was saying the mind is unformed, the mind is unborn. I was sitting there listening, and at that particular time it was just extremely concentrated, and for some reason all the factors just were in balance, and I was listening to this, look into your own mind, the mind is unformed, the mind, nature of mind is unborn. And when I heard the word unborn, something happened. It was like just the opening to... the opening to zero, the opening to the zero nature, the opening to the unborn. And it's interesting, just as a little reflection or meditation... You know, when we hear the word unborn in English, it's not a it's not really a common word. What what is it? You know, what does it mean? Just even as we hear it on an intellectual level. I mean, we could think of unborn as meaning always existing, and therefore it was unborn, because it's always been here. And we can also think of unborn as the reality of non-arising, the reality of non-occurrence. There's a a very nice uh, translation of a Chuang Tzu poem. Taoist poem by Merton. The poem is all about starlight in search of non-being. Starlight goes off in search of non-being. There's a whole poem about it. The very last line of it is when starlight can never find non-being, the last line is if on top of this non-being is who can understand it? So this is another meaning of unborn—the reality of non-being. Anyway, s- this something happened, and you know, I was just in a complete surprise and shock. And I kept saying to myself just just after that moment: "There's no me. There's no me. There's no me." It was a little disorienting. <laughs> You know, I was trying. Then it was just just before I was due to go home, and you know, this was completely out of context of anything. It was just uh, so I'm trying to relate to my friends and getting ready to you know come back to the states, and but just in this totally changed space. And for a while, I had the feeling, oh, maybe I'm done. No more self enlightened. You know, there's no one there. But then I'd kind of be walking down, you know, in some of the dark streets of Bangkok at night and fear would arise. Hmm, <laughs> someone's here. <laughs> 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 and I slowly came to realize that this was not the end of the journey, but really the beginning of the journey. It was like an intimation, you know, of what was possible not some final accomplishment. So I came back to the United States and I tried to continue my practice by myself. Um, I went off to this place. uh, It's a place called Chapel House at Colgate University. and It's just a little retreat house where you can go and basically do your own thing. It's a very nice, nice place. Well, when I was there, there was one other guest there I thought, hmm, I wonder what would happen if I get him to read this text to me again. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, oh, could you please read this to me? <laughs> so I'm sitting there and listening, okay, unborn, let's go, let's go. <laughs> it was obviously didn't quite work. <laughs> and at that time... I mean, I didn't really know much about meditation. I just had had a very you know, little introduction, so I just tried doing everything. I was doing mantras. I was watching the breath. I was focusing on my third eye. Just anything I had ever heard, you know, I started. And after a week of this, it got extremely confusing. Um, so I realized that I needed a teacher. You know, it was very. I just had no understanding of where to go and how to do this. So I went back to India uh, to look for a teacher. People had given me the names of various um, teachers that they had met. Uh, Went up to the mountains in Dalhousie. Uh, This was in December. Uh, Looking for some Tibetan teachers. Uh, They had all gone south. It was freezing. (laughs) And then I'm in New Delhi. And I thought, well, I'll go back to Thailand, which is where I had been for two years. And I'm walking down the street, and then it was quite amazing. Some force just stopped me. I could not take another step forward. And I mean, this was just very unusual for me. I I had no idea what that was about. I was like, I couldn't step forward. So I thought, okay, I'll go back. (laughs) (laughs) So I went back to where I was staying, and I thought, well, maybe I'll go to Banaras, you know, the holy holy city of India. Went to Benares, uh, hung out for a few days, going to the train station, the thought comes, why don't you go to Bodh Gaya? Bodh Gaya, of course, is the place of the Buddha's enlightenment. So just on a whim, I went to Bodh Gaya, uh, met, this was in 19, uh, 1967, there were just a few. Now it's quite crowded, and then there were only about four or five Westerners, you know, in the whole village. Uh, and they took me to see the teacher, who was Munindra. Munindra was a great teacher for me in so many ways. His mantra repeated endlessly was, be simple and easy. Be simple and easy about things. Whatever would come up, be simple and easy. Well, you hear it enough times, be simple and easy. He didn't fit my image of a guru at all. I mean, he wasn't kind of this quiet, slow, dignified-looking person. He was this little guy Very speedy, all wrapped in white. And he'd be kind of running around, doing all this stuff, talking very quickly, eating very quickly. But quite amazing in all that kind of running around, I never saw him rushing. He was always totally back in himself. But he wasn't a quiet, retiring type. And at times I would see him, you know, in the bazaar, in the market in Bodh and he'd be bargaining over, you know, five cents worth of peanuts and really haggling, you know, with the vendors. And I'd say, Meninger, what are you doing, you know? Supposed to be simple and easy. (laughs) And he said, the idea is to be simple, not a simpleton. (laughs) And uh, he would go on bargaining. He was very open-minded, and I'm so grateful I f- have had my first teacher have such an open-minded approach to the Dharma. He never discouraged anybody's exploration of anything. You know, people wanted to go off and study with different Hindu gurus or the Tibetan teacher or whatever. He always encouraged people just to explore because he said, the Dharma doesn't suffer in comparison to anything. You know, and it's even now, just when I think of that, it was <laughs> it's so moving, it's so powerful. You know, that complete confidence in the truth, in the power, and the purity of the Dharma, we don't have to be afraid of losing it. You know, he taught this very basic practice, which we're all doing, of a pra- of vipassana. Being with the breath, with sensations, with thoughts, with emotions, just everything we've been doing. And right there, you know, in those first years in Bodhgaya, it was really the very beginning of my understanding of one Dharma. Because here my really transformative experience had happened through listening to a Tibetan text. I come to Bodh Gaya... And I hear who had just come from Burma, teaching Vipassana, and the Vipassana felt to me the perfect expression of whatever that experience was. And so from the very beginning, kind of holding to differences, being attached to differences, didn't make so much sense to me. In those years, I was staying at a place called the Burmese Vihara, which was a vihara is dwelling place, so it's like a little, quite a small, you could say ashram. Or mm. at that time, Burma was closed to travel for Burmese, so mostly it was the place for the Westerners mm. to be. As I said, there were only really a few in those early years. In the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification. It describes the ideal place for meditation practice. And it says it should be away from a village and not near where people congregate and quiet and there should be appropriate food, and you know, all the, all the good conditions. Well, the Burmese vihara was right on the main road between Gaya and Gaia, which is a fairly big city lots of trucks and buses and cars and people. It was right across from a public water tap where all the village women would come, you know, to wash the clothes and be pounding away. There were villages all around, so particularly in certain times, you know, of festivity, there would be these loudspeakers blaring, you know, this Hindi film music all day and all night. You know, it was I don't know if you're familiar. I've ever seen. Kind of in India, they have these beds. It's a it's a wooden frame, and there's, uh, it's just rope, you know, woven back and forth in the frame. Uh, so it's a rope bed, and it's, it's actually, not reasonably comfortable. The problem was that it was five feet long. <laughs> you know, so my feet would be hanging over this the wooden the wooden frame. For some reason, for some inexplicable reason now, it took me about six months to realize that I should get a mosquito net. <laughs> so I'm in this place that's very noisy, you know, and the food was less than nourishing <laughs> you know, and I 'd be sleeping on this bed. V- very uncomfortable because it was so short, mosquitoes all around so I'd be kind of wrapped up and you know, trying. But what's so amazing to me when I look back at that, I felt such a deep and genuine gratitude for being there. I, it was just that sense of being in a place that honored and respected practice, that provided a space for practice. And so for me, it was like a deva world. I was so happy to be there. I think as I've mentioned a few times, concentration did not come easily to me. My mind, I think from all the philosophical studying and academic stuff, my mind thought a lot. And it was very, very difficult to sit cross-legged. I couldn't, I mean, it was just too painful. So what I did, I sat in a chair. But most chairs are too short for me you know, because I'm pretty tall. So what I did in my little corner of the Burmese Vihar, there was kind of this big wicker chair. I put each of the legs on four bricks. Then I put cushions on the back of the... Sh- so it was kind of like a shoe shine box. You know how you sit up like that? And then I had my mosquito net <laughs> hanging there. So I was like sitting on this throne, <laughs> 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 meditating. And Muninja would come by from time to time. <laughs> I was really embarrassed. <laughs> I mean, I don't think he's ever seen anybody meditate quite like that. <laughs> <laughs> but it worked. <laughs> you know, it's like whatever works. In those early years, though, I was really judging myself a lot in my practice, because, you know, just going through the same stuff that everybody goes through, you know, and all the hindrances. But I just got to a place where I realized I just need to put in my time. And I would tell myself, just sit and walk, surrender to the dharma. And that really was very helpful. You know, it allowed me, in one way, or it provided the foundation for just continuing through all the many, many ups and downs and difficulties. The very first time in Bodh I was just there for maybe about two months, and then I had to come back to the States. As I was leaving... I was just in the rickshaw about to go to the train station and Munindra comes out to see me off and he said something which at the time I really didn't appreciate at all, but over the years have come to value so deeply. His parting words to me as I left that first time He said, the Dhamma protects those who protect the Dhamma. And I heard it then. and. Okay. But over the years of practice, this doesn't mean that no difficulties come to us or that we don't, you know, have lots of different kinds of uh, painful experiences. What it does mean, the Dhamma protects those who protect the Dhamma, means that our practice protects us from the powerful forces of excessive greed, you know, and hatred and delusion. All those all those forces which cause so much suffering in our lives. The Dhamma protects those who protect the Dhamma. The transition back to the States was very difficult. I mean not only was it going from intensive meditation, you know, out into the world, but it was going from India to the West. So that was very, very difficult. I came back, I was really depressed. you know, And I remember sitting around, listening to Bob Dylan <laughs> doing some other things. <laughs> <laughs> Over the course of my India years, I ended up going back and forth maybe four or five times. and it really became easier. You know, and so I, I offer this also to you as in you know, the next couple of weeks you'll be leaving and transitioning out. And it is a change. You know, it's a change of energy. And at first it's difficult, but the transition itself is its own practice. And my experience has been that the more one does it, the easier it gets. On my way back to India, I saw, I had stopped in Israel on the way back and I went to the movies and I saw a movie called Charlie, which I don't know whether you remember, it was based on a story or a book called Flowers for Algernon and it was about this guy who uh, was mentally retarded. They had a, some kind of I don't know, it was an operation or a medicine or something. Anyway, some some medical thing, and he becomes brilliant, and then it starts to wear off. He's going back, and, but he knows what's happening. But it showed in the very, you know, first phase of how cruel people were to him. just unkind, really unkind. The many ways people were unkind, and I saw this, and it really touched me. And I just felt that a strong need to develop more loving kindness, because of course I saw all of all of that unkindness in myself as well at different times. So I said, it's really important to develop this feeling of more care, of more love. So when I went back to India, I told Munindra this. I said, I really want to do some metta practice. And so that was the first time I did, um, it was a couple of months of intensive metta. You know, went through all the difficulties that you're familiar with, but at a certain point, after about a month of practice, kind of it dropped in, and I got so happy. I was just, I felt so, my mind really had become concentrated for the first time, and I had this thought, This is how my life is going to be. You know, I just thought, well, I'm really happy. (laughs) And I just expected it to continue. But as we all know, the nature of a spiritual path is not hanging out in some bliss state, however nice it is. It's also seeing the shadow side of our minds. So in the middle of my doing metta, uh, I think I was still on my throne at that time. you know, So I was quite comfortable and just doing the mette and feeling so good. And then right outside my window, <coughs> there was kind of a little shelf where uh, I had bought some extra fruit to just supplement the diet. I had some oranges on the shelf. And there was this little Nepali kid <coughs> at the Vihara And I hear this rustling outside my window. And I'm saying, may all beings be happy, may all beings be free of pain, may all beings be liberated. The Nepali kid is stealing my oranges. May all beings be happy, (laughs) may all beings be peaceful. What's that kid doing? (laughs) <laughs> I was just watching my mind <laughs> quite unbelievably. It was instructive, you know to see that in the practice, we want to see all the sides of ourselves. and as you know, you know very well now uh, that this is part of our path of purification. So I spent the next, you know, few years in India. Sometimes up in the mountains, sometimes in Bodh Gaya. The practice started really going well. You know, the concentration was getting good. Mindfulness was getting very strong. I just want to read something. I just read um, the other day a few lines from the novelist Louise Erd- Erdrich, and the lines just captured what I think you'll resonate with as kind of the essence of the practice in those moments when we drop in. She wrote, those powerful moments of true knowledge, which we paper over with daily life, but every so often, something shatters like ice, and we fall into the river of our own existence. We are aware. I felt that's so much of what the practice is about, falling into the river of our own existence. We are aware. So there I was. You know, I had been doing a lot of practice. My mind had gotten very calm, quiet, really going well. Then Munindra had this very annoying habit of bringing every Western traveler who came through Bodh to visit Joseph. So I'd be sitting there, you know, really in deep concentration, practice going, well, I'd hear these footsteps outside. Munindra would come knocking, "Uh, uh, Joseph, talk to this guy. (laughs) Yeah, and I would get so irritated. (laughs) You know, and this was my teacher, you know, coming. But he kept doing it. And a lot of travelers came through. And at a certain point, I realized, well, the irritation is not really helping my practice very much. And there was this shift of seeing I could be sitting there in quiet, peaceful, mindful state. Somebody comes, get up, talk to him, come back. If I could stay in that equanimity, there was no problem at all with the practice. And that was tremendously instructive. So in retrospect, I'm quite grateful uh, foreman ninja. Over the years in India, you know, met, met and practiced with different teachers. We've spoken a lot about Deepa Ma. I think she was just the most inspiring for me. And it was this remarkable unity of stillness and love. She was so empty and the peace of that emptiness and the expression of it was just this unconditional love. And So simply being in her presence was this tremendous inspiration for me to see what was possible, that the mind can be developed to that extent. That was quite remarkable. And I studied a few years with Goankaji. You know, who taught the sweeping method. Very powerful. Powerful teacher, powerful presence. Very different than Manindra. Goankaji is very formal, very dignified. I mean, really everything one imagines a guru to be. Uh, there were trips in making that transition You know, because when Goenka would come into the room, everybody would bow. I mean, with Munindraji, it was much more informal. Uh, So those first few times, what's this bowing stuff? (laughs) (laughs) You know, my mind was going on all of these comparing things. Goenkaji was the one who initiated these vow hours. You know, okay, sit without moving for an hour. He'd go off and read his newspaper. You know, we'd be hearing him reading the newspaper Uh. and eating an apple and, but it was it was really helpful I have to compress things a bit in 73 and 74 i started teaching and it was quite organic Manindra would just suggest that different yogis you know beginners come and ask me questions and then he'd <coughs> um, after some time ask me to give a talk it was just this very gradual process. I remember there was one yogi there, a New Yorker, <laughs> who just asks the most irritating questions. <laughs> you know, so and I'm you know totally new to this, so I'm up there trying to you know give a little talk and answer some questions. And he, w- they were they were good questions. They were probing questions. They were challenging questions but with a very kind of difficult energy uh, and so a lot of those early years learning how to fence with him <laughs> yeah. but I'm very appreciative because his persistence in asking the questions now I realize forced forced a certain kind of clarity he wasn't letting he wasn't letting me get by with kind of you know, fuzzy thinking uh, so it was really helpful In seventy-four came back to the States, of course that was the first year of Naropa, kind of Buddhist woodstock, and it was a gathering of people from all over the country, you know, who, who really became interested in the teachings. Out of that summer in seventy four we organized the first month long retreat in the Sequoia National Forest. And soon after that, we were just going around teaching in many different places. Uh, We thought to have the idea of the first three-month retreat. This was in 75 in Bucksport, Maine. And I was just speaking with Steve, uh, who was at that first, for part of that first retreat in Bucksport. We had no idea, the teachers, we had no idea what we were doing. I had no idea what I was doing. Sometime during, during that time, uh, I don't know if any of you remember the Rolling Thunder Review. Bob Dil- it was a concert tour by Bob Dylan and Joan Baez. and They happened to be in uh, Bangor, Maine. So they're coming through, and I have this bright idea. Let's take all the yogis to the concert. <laughs> uh, fortunately, I was talked out of it. This is in a three-month course. you know. <laughs> sounds like fun. <laughs> that, course, we had no integration week at the end at all. Last day of silence, send people home. We got these reports all up and down the East Coast of <laughs> the walking wounded. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just like throwing people out into without any kind of preparation. We've learned a little bit <laughs> over these years. Started IMS in 76. And in those years, I was I was doing retreats every year for about a month. But after about 10 years of teaching, pretty full-on schedule and, and really all over the world, it was as if we just caught the wave of interest. You know, from that, from 74, it was just so much interest developing you know, all over. And so there was... A lot of teaching going on, but after 10 years, I really felt something was missing, for me personally. and Then in 84, I was watching the Winter Olympics, and I don't know how many of you remember, uh, in the ice skating competition, the team of Torval and Dean did this performance and got a perfect score. I got a perfect 10. You know, it was just it was an unbelievably outstanding performance and I was watching that and I was just incredibly touched by the possibility of perfection. Just perfection in anything, bringing anything, you know, to that level of refinement and fulfillment and applying that inspiration to my own life. I thought yeah, I really want to do more practice. Uh, how can I bring my own mind to that kind of perfection or, or move towards it? Now was the year we invited Saida Upandita you know, to come to uh, teach here. First uh, three-month course, the 84 course, the famous, <laughs> you know, very rigorous, very hard. And he was extremely demanding. Just you know, four hours of sleep a night or less. And at one point, I, I may have mentioned this to you. You know, he was having me work with pain, just sitting through it. And I was going in each time and you know, having problems. And at one point, he said to me, "Don't you have any pride in being a man?"
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> not at the moment. <laughs> It was so bad that as I heard planes going over, I was sitting down, uh, my room was down in the lower walking room, you know, just uh, in those end rooms there. So I was sitting down and I would hear the planes coming over and I would be praying that they were Russians dropping the bombs. <laughs> you know, anything so I could stop sitting. <laughs> but over the next eight years, I sat a lot with Said. I was, did many of us, you know, many long retreats. And really, Learned a lot about what right effort means because Sayadaw is such a warrior. It was very helpful. And then I started also doing periods of the Brahma Viharas, you know, just exploring as, as we've done here. Slowly began to see the interconnectedness of mindfulness and metta. And this was. This was a powerful coming together. It was expressed in one line by Ram guru, Maharaji, Neem Karoli Baba. One of the lines he would say very often to people, Do what you do, but don't throw anyone out of your heart. Like that was the bottom line of the teaching. Don't throw anyone out of your heart. And in the course of my own practice, I saw that we can really approach this from two sides. We can approach it from the side of metta, you know, just including oneself, the benefactor, friend, neutral, difficult people, all beings. We just radiate our metta until it includes all beings. We can also approach it from the side of mindfulness, of insight, when we realize that there's no one there to keep anybody out. And so this, this understanding, this union, becomes a very powerful practice. Seeing the union of emptiness and love, emptiness and compassion. In the last ten years or so, as many of you know, I've also practiced with some wonderful teachers of Dzogchen meditation. And you know, just resting in the nature of awareness, the nature of mind, that empty, open awareness. And when I first started doing it, I had the idea that, well, this is really a different practice. And I remember sitting there. Of course, the instruction is just to be at ease, resting in open awareness. But I was sitting there because I had this idea in my mind that was so totally different than what I had been doing, I'd be sitting, Don't do vipassana, don't do vipassana. You know, and so whenever my mind would just kinda go be mindful of knot, don't do vipassana. <laughs> so I was getting more and more contracted, you know, this totally fixated fixation in mind, was tying myself in a knot. After some time, and this took quite a quite a bit of time, in doing that practice, just to relax and let go. And I began to see that the two are not very different at all. That in some way they're just different sides, different aspects of the same thing. So the mind became very fluid. Sometimes one is resting in the open emptiness of awareness, and sometimes the mind is focusing on the object. For myself, Now the two practices have really come together. And so when people ask me, now, you know, what do I practice? Do I practice vipassana? Do I practice zhouchen? It's much more simple. I practice non-clinging. That's what the practice is. And we can practice non-clinging in a Tibetan house. We can practice it in a Burmese house. We can practice it in a Thai house. The house, the style of the house doesn't really matter. It can support us in certain ways, but the essence of freedom is in the mind that is not clinging to anything as I or mine. It's this understanding coming just to the essence of the Dharma, the essence of the teachings, as you know i mean this this is really my understanding of what one dharma is about this this is the teaching of the buddha we can use the different traditions but it all comes down to this very practice that we're doing here the practice of not clinging so i'd like to close with the question that we ended last week with question that somebody asked After all these years of practice and training, what inspires you the most in your practice today? What gives you the greatest happiness? There are two interrelated aspects of the Dharma which really highlight what I value the most and what brings the most joy in my practice, in my life. And the first is... the recognition of the possibility and the practice of purifying my motivation. That the possibility of purifying our motivation is to me an astounding thing. That we do not have to stay imprisoned in all of the conditioned, habituated tendencies of our lives which cause can cause so much suffering. It's the great joy that comes in seeing through the defilements, in seeing their empty, transparent, insubstantial nature. You know, the great joy that comes in weakening this so strong habit of self-reference, of self-center. And just to taste, even at different moments, the possibility of purifying our hearts of these tendencies and seeing there's a way to do that. This is, to me, just tremendously inspiring. The second wonder of the Dharma, which I've talked a little bit about, is the growing experience that all of the Brahma Viharas that we practiced, of love, of compassion, of empathetic joy, of equanimity, that all of these really divine abodes are the activity of emptiness. That the one is the expression of the other. It's the realization you know, in myself and I think for all of us that the wisdom of selflessness, the wisdom of emptiness, expresses itself in innumerable ways in compassionate responsiveness in the world. That the emptier we get of self the more we reside in that place, the very activity of that wisdom is compassionate responsiveness. And it's not compassion as a stance, it's simply the spontaneous responsiveness of a mind that's not clinging to I. And we understand, and again, this is, for me, what brings it all together in the most beautiful and whole context, the understanding that everything we do, and that all of our practice, our whole spiritual journey, can be done with that very rare and precious motivation of bodhicitta realizing that we are not doing this for ourselves alone that we can cultivate and nourish that aspiration, that our practice in our lives be for the welfare and the benefit and the awakening of all beings. The Dalai Lama really summed this up so well as he does so much. He said, the real meaning or purpose in life is to find peace in yourself and help others share in that peace. So it's a beautiful thing that we're all doing. It's really the most valuable thing that we can do. And certainly what the world needs. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. Thank mm-hmm. you.